0: Are there racial disparities in the use of really effective diabetes meds?
1: Preventing acute kidney injury in patients undergoing cardiac procedures.
0: What is the relationship between autoimmune diseases and cardiovascular diseases?
1: Reducing low-value care with regard to radiology procedures.
0: That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist.
1: And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine.
0: Rick, I'm going to give you carte blanche this morning. Which one would you like to start with?
1: Let's first talk about preventing acute kidney injury in individuals that had cardiac procedures. How's that?
0: Sounds good to me. That's a JAMA.
1: Great. And specifically, we're talking about procedures in which people get dye, that is a radiographic material that allows us to see images, and that's usually associated with coronary angiography. And we know that if you give too much of this dye to individuals, it can cause acute kidney injury, especially in those that are already at risk, and we can estimate that. You know, for years, we've known it can cause acute injury, but we've not done a really good job of trying to prevent that. So these investigators devised a specific program that they rolled out to all invasive cardiologists at three cardiac cath labs in Canada. And by the way, let's shout out to one of our longtime listeners and friends, Tom, who's been faithful as a Canadian to listen to us for 19 years. So Tom, this is for you. So here's what they did. They rolled out, first of all, an education series for an hour. Then they had an on-the-spot point-of-care clinical decision support. They looked at the specific individual and using their electronic medical records, it calculated how much dye they should receive, how much fluid they should receive afterwards. And then they followed up and told them over the course of the quarter how well they did. Did they use too much dye or enough dye, too much fluid, too little fluid? And what they discovered was in those 31 physicians who performed over 4,300 procedure, they reduced the acute kidney injury rate from 8.6% to 7.2%. That's a 28% reduction. Audit and feedback afterwards can modify physician experience.
0: This model, audit and feedback, this is actually the first time I've heard this phraseology. I'm wondering how acceptable it is to clinicians to have this employed.
1: Seldom is that are given to the individual physician. And actually physicians like it. You have an individualized patient program. And then it says, how well are you able to keep to that? At least it keeps it in the forefront. So we can get our procedures done and do it safer. That audit and feedback ends up being incredibly useful
0: I think this sounds like a really interesting model. I'm also wondering about this relatively modest reduction and where would you look to reduce it even further or is it just not possible to do that? Elizabeth, I do think we're able
1: to do a better job. For example, most of the acute injury that occurred in this subset was in individuals in whom the amount of dye that was recommended was actually exceeded. As you know, Elizabeth, I ran a cardiac cath lab for 20 years, and our incidence of acute kidney injury in these individuals that were at high risk, when we kept to all of our guidelines, was less than 2%. The people who developed acute injury was those that received more dye or less fluid afterwards to wash the dye out. So I'm confident we would get those numbers even lower, even in high risk individuals.
0: Let's turn from here to The Lancet, and this is a very comprehensive look at the relationship between autoimmune diseases and cardiovascular risk. In this case, they took a look at 19 autoimmune diseases and 12 cardiovascular diseases in 22 million individuals in the United Kingdom, in folks who were newly diagnosed with any of these 19 autoimmune diseases between January of 2000 and December, the end of December 2017, and people younger than 80 years of age at diagnosis and free of cardiovascular disease up to 12 months after their diagnosis. And then they match those folks with up to five individuals using the same demographic. Almost a half a million individuals with the autoimmune diseases, over 2 million of the controls. Other patient characteristics, mean age at diagnosis of their autoimmune disease, 46.2 years, almost 61% of those were women. The incidence rate of cardiovascular disease was was 23.3 events per 1,000 patient years if you had an autoimmune disease versus 15 per 1,000 patient years in those without one. They also calculated if you had one autoimmune condition versus two or three, sure enough, your incidence of cardiovascular disease also went up in a linear way. The autoimmune diseases that were most problematic, systemic sclerosis, Addison's disease, systemic lupus, erythematosus, and type 1 diabetes. So they conclude then at the end of this study that people with autoimmune disease need to be scrutinized very carefully and managed for their cardiovascular disease risk.
1: And the amazing thing is that all 19 of them were associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And by the way, it was a variety of cardiovascular diseases. Besides classic atherosclerosis, it included infection-related heart disease, heart inflammation, thromboembolic disease, and even degenerative heart disorders. That tells us it's not a specific autoimmune disease, but just inflammation in general. The risk associated with autoimmune disease is the same as increasing blood pressure, having type 2 diabetes, or markedly elevated cholesterols. We need to treat these individuals as if they have a modifiable cardiac risk factor.
0: One of the factors that's kind of buried in their discussion is that they talk about outcomes in patients with autoimmune disease in the JUPITER trial. They say perhaps these results from the JUPITER trial could support the use of statins in patients with autoimmune disease.
1: The JUPITER trial tested the use of statins in individuals that had a high C-reactive protein, even if their LDL cholesterol wasn't elevated, and it was shown to reduce cardiovascular disease. The authors suggest that this group of individuals would be ideal for testing the use of statins to see if we can reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, and I would totally agree with that.
0: Let's go back to JAMA.
1: This is talking about reducing the use of x-rays in situations where they may not be particularly useful. There are a number of musculoskeletal conditions in which tests are ordered where usually, unless there's some obvious reason, the x-ray doesn't provide any additional helpful information. We're talking about things like spine x-rays or cervical x-rays or x-rays of the shoulder, hip, knee when someone sprained it or someone has just chronic pain where it's not gonna be particularly useful. What these investigators did, they did a very novel thing. Instead of just putting out all these blurbs and saying, okay, here's the authorized use and don't do it for this. And you get all these lists, they're very difficult to follow. They just targeted the 20% of referrers who were the highest users of these 11 different imaging techniques. They said, hey, we want you to know that you're among the top 20% of users of x-rays. And they did it in one of two ways. They either notified them at one time or two times. They used a visual chart or not. The visual chart would indicate where they were When they looked at a total of 3,800 high requesting general practitioners from over 2,200 practices that were randomized to either notifying them just with words or using visual graphs, they were able to decrease the overall rate of imaging over a 12-month period by about 10%. That was over 47,000 different tests that weren't ordered during that time period. So they call this audit and feedback intervention, just as we talked before.
0: Yeah. And I would still point to this notion that I'm wondering about individual practitioners and how onerous they may find it or unacceptable they may find it to feel like they're being scrutinized that carefully. And I would point to studies that we've talked about before relative to prescribing of opioids and just how challenging it's been to get people to say, "Hmm, I am being watched and therefore maybe I ought to change my behavior.
1: Being watched is one thing, being told what to do is another. But we all think that our patients are unique and that our practices are somewhat different from the norm. And I think physicians really get most upset once they get a note from someone saying, you can't do this or you shouldn't do this when they don't know the patients. In this particular case, you just let the physician know, hey, you're in the top 20% of users and the physician decides.
0: And I would also note that this study done in Australia has a different patient population. Here in the US, patients frequently come to their practitioner with fairly high expectations expect to have something as a result of their visit. And I'm wondering how big a factor that is. Somebody just says, well, all right, you have back pain, go and have a CT.
1: Yeah. And that's the easiest way to get around, Elizabeth. You don't have to spend much time with the patient. Conversely, if you spend some time and say, hey, listen, we know from studies that the CT is not likely to be helpful, but physical therapy can be extremely helpful. And we can reserve a CT for later because it exposes you to radiation. So you're right. There are always trade-offs.
0: Staying in Gemma, finally, let's turn to one of the things we've examined very closely in lots of different places, and that's inequity among different ethnicities with regard to lots and lots of health interventions. And in this case, it's the use of two novel therapies for type 2 diabetes, and those are SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists. These are newer agents. They're more expensive than everything else that's going on out there. And it's already been shown in other populations that there's a disparity among who gets these agents. They're known to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease and chronic kidney disease progression in folks with type 2 diabetes. People who have private health insurance in other populations have been getting these prescribed more often than those who don't. So this study took a look at the U.S. Veterans Health Administration's Corporate Data Warehouse. Wow, that's got to be a gigantic database. They examined the use of these agents in adult patients with type 2 diabetes and at least two primary care visits for about two years. They also looked at self-identified race and ethnicity. What they basically found among over a million patients is that sure enough, if you were white, you were more likely to be prescribed one of these two agents than if you were American Indian, Alaska Natives, Native Hawaiians, other Pacific Islander groups, and then Black or African American patients. And unfortunately, those patients had the lowest odds of being prescribed one of these agents compared with white patients, even though we know that they have a high incidence of type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease. So the question is, why is this?
1: Elizabeth, that's a great question. And I wish I knew the answer. I wish this study answered it. And unfortunately, it doesn't. But it is another piece of evidence that suggests there is some disparity, and we need to figure out what that is. There are a couple of things that were disappointing to me about this study. First of all, the reason why this VA population is particularly interesting is allegedly it takes away some of the financial issues. In other words, every veteran ought to have access to the same medications at a relatively nominal cost. Unfortunately, this particular study, even though the cost sharing is lower in veterans' hospitals than in non veterans' hospitals, it's not negligible. The other thing that was really disappointing is that even in the VA population, the use of these medications was under 11%, and these are recommended for most individuals with diabetes, regardless of whether their sugar is extremely high, to prevent, as you mentioned, cardiovascular disease and kidney disease. And there was a 16 to 18-fold difference across different veteran hospital systems. This is disconcerting, Elizabeth.
0: I also found it very interesting that there was such a variation among different centers. I also learned a new term, and I don't know if you were already familiar with this, pharmacoequity. I suspect that we're going to be hearing a whole lot more about that as time goes on.
1: Right. It's making sure that everybody that needs pharmacologic therapy, that is medication is, medication—is access to the medications that are recommended based upon guidelines that we know helps either prevent or treat a disease condition.
0: On that note then, that is a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up
1: and make healthy choices.